Delian Asparohov is a principal at Founders Fund. Before joining Founders Fund, he was principal at Coastal Ventures, head of growth at Teespring, and founder of a healthcare company called Nightingale. He's now co-founder at Varda, a space manufacturing company, which we'll get into later. Delian is Bulgarian, attended MIT, and likes to ski and play soccer. Today we talked about immigrant beginnings, unconventional paths, and space factories. It's great to get to chat. Yeah, no problem, man. To start us off, I think it's really, you, you have a cool background. I mean, you grew up in, what is it, a Bulgarian family, right? Mm -hmm. So Yeah, in Bulgaria and then moved out here. Yeah, yeah. So the, the immigrant story, right? Like, I'm curious for starters how that's impacted you, not just from like, you know, political philosophy, but generally like going about life. Because I think a lot of people in the U.S. sort of operate in a bubble in the sense that the U.S. is, you know, sort of contained in a lot of ways. So how has that been, you know, interacting with people on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, I mean, you know, I moved here when I was four, four and a half years old, but my parents would like ship me back every, you know, summer as a kid to Bulgaria for like the first su full summer, right? So like I would get out of school, whatever, you know, May 15th, and I'd be there until, you know, August 15th. And so a lot of my most like formative years, because like in some ways, like the fun parts are like those like empty summer months were all in Bulgaria, you know, growing up on like my grandparents' farm, you know, as I started getting older, they actually let me do sort of more like summer camps where I was completely out on my own, like, you know, doing these like math and computer science camps out on like the beach towns in Bulgaria and like, you know, working all day and then like clubbing at night and basically like living entirely on my own, like doing my own laundry, et cetera, when I was like in like whatever, seventh grade or you know, sixth grade. So there's like a ton of, you know, independence, a ton of like very formative experiences in this like very international world that made it to that, like, you know, when I was, you know, growing up in the States, I actually like very much felt like I was not an American. Like I was like, I am a Bulgarian who happens to like live in America, but like all of my friends, all the fun that I'm having are all Bulgarian. And then, you know, finally sort of after that eighth grade summer, which was like the last time I did it, it was only finally in high school where like I stayed around in the States during the summer and maybe started to have a little bit more of a shift. And it was maybe finally like, once I went to MIT and then dropped out and was out in San Francisco or like two or three years in, I was like, oh, I actually feel like proud to be an American immigrant. And I'm actually most proud of that culture in some ways, even more so than I'm, you know, pr prideful of the, like, you know, Bulgarian culture. And there was for sure some amount of, like, I remember in high school having all of these, like, just odd moments where I was maybe either a little too direct or harsh or the way that I would act on dates was a little weird or just like, felt like there were things that just like, you know, kind of stuck out like a sore thumb and again, continued at MIT. And then even when I dropped out and I finally like visited Bulgaria for the first time since that eighth grade summer in like 2015, when I was, you know, 20, let's see, 22 or 21 and went and uh, hung out with my cousin, who's, uh, you know, my same, like literally the exact same age as me, I think within like six months or something like that in Bulgaria. And I remember literally just like hanging out with him, like during the day, like he had like a girl that he was dating at the time that he like brought around and i remember just being like oh my fucking god all these things that like kind of would rub up incorrectly whether the directness or all these things it was literally just like it wasn't me being weird it was me just being bulgarian because that's what i fucking grew up around like that was what like you know i had at home and that was also what i had like you know in the summers like again you know maybe it wasn't quite this extreme you know when i was like in high school but to give you a sense of it like i remember like we were you know whenever i was like 22 in bulgaria with my cousin and we were like driving somewhere and the girl that he was dating was like driving and she makes like one like incorrect, like a, a right turn rather than the left turn. And my cousin just starts fucking like ripping into her. And I was like, oh my fucking God. And then the girl just looks at him and is like, Haha, you're like, you're so funny. Like, you're right. And I was just like, 
Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Maybe flirting in Bulgaria was a little different. And maybe that's why women would always be like dying. You're like, you know, so fucking you know, traditionalist, two gender roles, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, yeah, like Bulgarian dating culture is still very much in like the equivalent of like where the United States was in, like the 60s. Yeah. And like the things that are acceptable to say there is very different than what are acceptable to say in the United States. And so that obviously like colored some of the relationships that I was in, in, in like, you know, in college where like you're very different than, you know, Mr. American. Man. So yeah, lots of, you know, things where it's like, you know, painted like the day-to-day life. And then I feel like now I've kind of found a happy medium where it's like, yeah, like I literally got, you know, pitched by this one founder from like New York on this, like, it's like a, like, you know, whatever, like sex, like toy and lube and whatever, like marketplace thing. And like the whole pitch was this like, you know, gender roles aren't real. Sexuality is a spectrum. Like, you know, it's very like, and I literally responded to him was like, one, why do you think this would ever be a fit for me? Like I've, if I'm at, if, if there's any thesis that I have is that like gender roles in the United States are actually going to reverse closer, not like, not quite with all the downsides of the things in the sixties, but with the parts of the upsides of the sixties that were like maybe more family oriented and like, you know, stronger and more distinct gender roles. So one, I just like disagree with that. And two, I just generally don't get along with like what I called Portlandia sexuals. Like that's just not my fucking people. <laughs> so anyway, so there are still times where like, I still lean into like that, you know, sort of Bulgarian traditionalist taking my, you know, girlfriend out to like that farm in Bulgaria where I grew up on and like had all these experiences and, you know, getting tra- dressed up in traditional Bulgarian attire. And then that's what I'm actually going to be proposing to her. And so, you know, still definitely, you know, have a part of me that is very much still, you know, enwrapped in, in, in that culture. It affects how I think on a day-to-day basis. And then for sure, there's all the like later stage in life, then political implications that I start to see when I see like, I don't know, Taylor Lorenz and like, you know, white waspy fucking, you know, woman like going after me on Twitter saying I'm a white supremacist. I'm like, you're the person that's like, you know, NIMBY, anti-immigration. And like, in my opinion, it was like, the fucking most racist people that I encounter are these just like white liberals from like, you know, the Northeast and Northwest that like, you know, think that they're all hunky dory and are like, you know, super, you know, pro whatever, everybody, but they're not pro you building, you know, uh, an apartment building next to their house. And it's like, what do you, who do you think moves into that apartment building? It's the fucking immigrants. Like, you know, we're the ones that like, you know, get to use those units. We don't build new housing. Turns out that's just make the old rich people, you know, a little more rich and so anyways, definitely, you know, affects some of the, you know, political leanings later in life when I see people either, you know, complain about, you know, working hard being too pro-socialism or communism or you know trying to claim that i'm a white supremacist just for like wearing a maga hat and voting for trump which i'm you know proud to say that i you know did in the last election so anyways lots of different ways a lot of stuff there Uh, you know you you mentioned this a little bit earlier and i think it'd be a shame to to gloss over it but you know being in vc now obviously you've gone through like sort of a a pretty non-traditional path right like you're an mit dropout and it's it's there's a cool contrast there because most of the kids that i talk to here in college that want to get into vc are all like okay you got to go into like investment banking first like that's you know so i i'd be curious to hear a little bit about like the path that you took because originally you wanted to go into like academia right and now you're you know incubating a, a space company and you're working as a vc so it's two very different things going on there yeah, I mean, it was it was all with this original goal of like eventually getting into like you know space exploration. It was just originally the path that I only had available to me was you know via sort of my parents both being academics, running around Caltech, JPL. I was like, great, you know, undergrad at MIT, grad school at Caltech, I work at JPL. That'll be sort of like you know my career. And sort of discovering like the world of startups, you know, in sort of like freshman year of college at MIT, which eventually like led me you know to to dropping out. And so. Yeah, I mean, I, I very much, you know, have enjoyed sort of, you know, discovering, you know, this this approach and, you know, in terms of actually like getting into venture, it was very much like an accidental thing. Like this wasn't like I 
and a lot of things that I think in, in like people, you know, it's easy to uh, form a retrospective, you know, thread that, you know, makes a set of sense versus like each step along the way didn't necessarily, you know, make a lot of sense. It was more just kind of following my gut towards the things where I was like, I'm just going to follow where I think are the most interesting, unique people and idea and where it feels like people are having a lot of impact. Miami being the latest example of that, right? Like these could totally end up being a complete fad, but I'm at least glad that like all the weirdos that I know are moving here. And like, you know, I'm glad to be around a bunch of weirdos and typically put a bunch of weirdos in a room and like something pretty interesting happens. And then, yeah, in relationship to the world of venture, for sure, there's a past where you do like investment banking and then you join insight partners and you eventually join CoTU or something like that. And it's yeah. like, a very different style of investing than what I do, right? Like I don't open up, you know, Excel spreadsheets and, you know, cold email, you know, founders all day. That's a, that's a different job that I wouldn't necessarily want to do. It's much later stage. It's much more financially driven. I do like, you know, early stage, crazy ideas, two founders in like a garage, you know, type of investing that requires being a little bit more creative, crazy, and having a bit of like that founder sort of, you know, background. Yeah. There's, there's different, you know, approaches to getting into it, but you know, the, the most important thing in some ways is like, get yourself near the pool of weirdos and start to work with them and, you know, angel nesting them, you know, work at one of the companies that a venture capitalist has funded, and then you'll end up sort of stumbling your way into the world of venture, even if you don't mean to. So what does that process look like for you versus anybody at Founders Fund versus VC in general in, in your mind? Because like how much of this is conviction based? How much of it is, you know, I'm investing in people. I guess it depends on what stage you are. But I've heard this uh, story of you being on like a plane to Portugal after like a couple calls with with Sword Health, right? So how does that all look for you? Do you have like a thesis that you operate by? No, I mean, I think, you know, this, this, especially early stage is much more gut based, you know, that people appreciate. You're just looking for like that sort of spidey sense or like spark, right? Like the idea that you should like start a company that could potentially change the world is like fucking crazy. Like that just makes no sense. Like, you know, it's, it, it's extremely difficult and effectively impossible to do. And anybody embarking on that journey is crazy. And so you're trying to find the people that are crazy that actually like have that shot. And, you know, that potential can, you know, show up in a variety of ways. It can show up via a very well formatted cold email, right? I get a variety of cold emails that I don't respond do like i responded to yours because it was just like well-structured clear concise like you you know brought up interesting points and i was like i don't know like you know what the like you know upside is going to be here but like there's at least you know something interesting there and it's the same thing with sword where just like i was like you know i like have been thinking about the physical therapy space is interesting but it's like a very well-written cold email and then i was just like indexing off of that spark that was just like you know hopping on the phone with the sword health founder and just being like wow okay he's like in the middle of like not even like lisbon portugal like the capital he's in the middle of like porto portugal in the suburbs so like the second largest town in portugal in the suburbs of that going to like some academic school figuring out how to like learn about the world of startups building some technology actually getting like traction revenue investors from portugal and like starting to build that up it was just like man there's like just like a lot of obstacles versus like the kid in like menlo park high school that goes to stanford and like yeah, yeah. you know fucking like stumbles into an angel round because he just like you know you know tweets an idea for a startup basically it's like a different <laughs> level of like you know adversity that you kind of have to go through when you're coming from portugal and so the sparks can show up in different ways sometimes it's from something that the person is really passionate about and maybe it's like an ncaa athlete or something like that like honestly a lot of the founders that i work with have come either from you know, you know, adversity via the world of sports, they've overcome adversity via the world of like, you know, I probably guess like 60% of like the founders that I've invested in are like have similar immigrant backgrounds. Partially for sure, there's some positive bias towards wanting to invest in people that kind of look like yourself and have similar backgrounds. But part of it is that like, yeah, immigrants have to go through a lot more adversity than like the Taylor Lorenzes of the world. And yeah, it just felt like he had gone through, you know, a lot of adversity. And then it's like, once you sort of see that spark in the different, you know, parts of life, it's in just like having that conviction to, you know, once you, you know, flip over, flip over to, you know, feeling like you've seen that spark, it's just like, 
do whatever it takes to sort of like, quote unquote, like win the deal. And so, you know, in, in sword health in particular, once I'd identified, I was like, man, this feels really strong. You kind of have to take every advantage that you can as a junior investor, right? That was like effectively like my third deal that I'd done at the time. And like the advantage that I had was that like, you know, the Keiths and the Vinodes and the Alfred Linds, et cetera, of the world, no matter how fucking cool your company is, they're not hopping on a plane and flying internationally a week after meeting you. Like they have a lot of stuff going on and they're not going to do that, you know, versus I was like, okay, I need to, you know, use, uh, use my, you know, junior free schedule to my advantage. And I'm going to go fly to Portugal and be crazy. And like, rather than letting him go run a process a month from now and meet a ton of people in Silicon Valley, I'm going to go fly to him and run the process instead. And so, yeah, there's no, I don't think there's like any like, you know, particular framework in some ways, like you can use for it. Um, in some ways it's like gut based and it definitely helps just like building more, you know, at, at bats and more reps of it. Cause then you start to like, you know, recognize different signals of just like, you know, Max, Le- Max Levchin's resilience and, you know, ability to overcome adversity looks very different than like Elon's looks very different than Max Rhodes at FAIR or, you know, Jeff Bezos's, et cetera. Right. And so you start to realize, okay, there's different ways to sort of like, you know, pattern it, but you're always kind of looking for that sort of saying of like, can this person become like a world-class CEO? Definitely. All right. So I do want to spend some time talking about Varda because it's like the coolest thing ever. And it probably sounds a little sci-fi to a lot of people still, but Okay. So whenever you're talking to anybody and you bring up Varda and you're like, this is what we do. How do you even describe what a space factory is? Because that sounds so far out there that it's what's, what's like the elevator pitch basically. Totally. Yeah. There's basically a series of uh, very high value, but extremely sensitive materials that can be fabricated in a microgravity environment, i.e. zero G but cannot be fabricated on Earth. And this has been well, well studied and proven uh, on the International Space Station over the past 15 years. People have done experiments with everything from human organs, semiconductors, there's various pharma drugs, fiber optics, lots of benefits that have been shown to manufacture things in zero gravity and real commercial benefit things, something that people would be willing to pay for. The problem is the International Space Station isn't exactly set up to be a step in somebody's, you know, sort of commercial supply chain, right? That is a research station that requires a ton of layers of bureaucracy to get anything onto and off of and extremely long schedules and extreme expenses, right? That is not something that can be, you know, the the the, the step in a supply chain that like Apple relies on to get their like Silicon M1 chip out. And so what Varda is doing is sort of, I call it like the transition path to that research. I take that research that's been done on the ISS but just do it independently of the ISS. And so, well, what does that mean? Getting up to space is actually relatively, quote unquote, easy at this point. There's a lot of people that will get you up there, right? So, you know, Rocket Lab, SpaceX, you know, Virgin Galactic, Virgin Orbit, you know, et cetera. The next step to be independent of the ISS is like, okay, you can't just like fly to the ISS and run your experiment on there. You got to like run it on your own like platform. And what does that platform look like? Well, turns out it looks a lot like a satellite. Basically, you need like, you know, solar panels and radios and things like that. And then that's the thing that you like, you put the factory on top of, right? I, the, whatever it was, the ISS, whether it was manufacturing fiber optics or making human organs or making the pharma drug, just build that same factory, but put it on top of the satellite. And then the final thing that you need, and this is the thing that everybody was really scared of, all these academics that didn't want to, you know, sort of, you know, work on the sort of commercial approach, which is when you're on the ISS, you get free rides down. You get, you know, the Soyuz, the Cygnus, the Dragon, et cetera. If you're off on your own, you don't get no free ride down. And it turns out people don't appreciate you're going really fast up there. The ride down is a lot more painful than the ride up and you're going really fast. There's a lot of heat. And so we basically are also building a sort of miniature reentry view that is super cheap and isn't like human rated, like, right? You and I would not survive if we went in, uh, in and there, but, you know, organs and glass and semiconductors, et cetera, will. And so that's sort of what the space factory means is you send up what kind of looks like a satellite with a little factory attached to it and a little reentry vehicle. It fabricates the stuff, 
puts it in the reentry vehicle and brings it back. And so that's what Varda's doing and, you know, scaling that up and, you know, then finding the customers on the back end to buy all those materials that we're uh, producing. So what's the starting point for fabrication, right? Because the first, you know, couple iterations of this, I'm sure like it's going to cost a lot of money and there's not going to be a lot of economies of scale that you are sort of working with. So what's like the most cost-effective thing to start with? Is it human organs? Is it like, what is it? We're not yet talking about the material that we're like working on. We will reveal it sort of later in the year. Parts oh, are just sweet. like, you know, we want to like reveal it once we've actually like show, sort of quote unquote showed success with it. Like I, you know, not just talking about the material, but like here's the customer that's buying the material and they're part right. of the press okay. release. Um, and saying it, but yeah, if you go and if you go uh, and you know read all these sort of international space station you know research papers and things like that, it's relatively obvious like sort of which set of materials are just much higher value, command a higher price, so that the economics are like easier to start. And so we chose the sort of highest value one per unit mass that also has the sort of like easiest engineering and like simplest sort of fabrication. Like it's not like robot arms moving around. That, but yeah, sure. The first couple of relatively net negative margin, but, you know, our current projections make it seem like, you know, I think we should be able to get to sort of positive margins by sort of mission, you know, three or four. So first couple of missions for sure lose money on, but mission three and beyond, you know, making money on ideally. So you're starting pretty small, obviously, but what does this whole thing look like at scale? Like what's the vision 10 years from now? Yeah. So the first, like, you know, let's say, you know, eight or nine missions, we're calling that a sort of like disposable space factory, right? So we go up, we fabricate the thing, we basically ditch the factory that burns up in orbit. And then the reentry capsule brings the materials back down. But over time, it starts to make sense to create like a reusable space factory, i.e. leave the factory up there and instead develop docking capabilities, dock with the factory, exchange the raw materials for the process materials, and then come back down. Um, and so in the long term, we start to look like, you know, a 500 kilogram sort of like robotic facility that is like up there permanently. But as we start to use up all that production volume, then it starts to look like a thousand kilograms, then two thousand, then ten thousand, then the size of the ISS, and then ten times the size of the ISS, and then eventually, you know, something like an industrial park the size of Shanghai, you know, in lower Earth orbit, and that's a, that's the size and scale that we need to build to sort of satisfy the demand from the customers that we're talking to. Definitely. So another question is in terms of dealing with raw materials, obviously not like the most cost-effective thing to just blast stuff up there every time. Are you guys thinking about anything like, I don't know, lunar ice mining or asteroid mining? Like, is any of that in the books? So not something that, you know, I think Varda will necessarily tackle directly, but part of why I get excited about Varda is like twofold. One, the way that you will eventually get humanity out into the stars isn't just by like exploration or, you know, throwing big rockets at Mars, right? If you think about California, California became California, not when like Lewis and Clark came out here and maybe they came out in a really big boat, a small boat, doesn't fucking matter how big the, like, the size of the boat is. The reason California became California was the gold rush, right? It was the industrialization of California and the economic incentive for it. VARD is the first equivalent for space. I really strong physical material economic incentive for being in space, not just like satellites beating photons up and down and communicating with Earth. And so the reason I get excited is like, that's actually what, you know, expands our ability to, you know, get into the stars much faster. And then the second part, and, you know, relates to sort of your question, which is, yeah, for a long time, we will be getting the raw materials from space. But like when the next company comes along and is like, hey, Varda, you're consuming a lot of water in space. We can bring it from the moon for like half the price. I'm like, hell yeah, I'll be a commercial customer. And so part of what I get excited about as a VC is like right now, lunar ice mining is not venture backable. That's just like not the thing that I can find makes sense, you know, to do commercially in the short term. But for sure, once Varda is up and functioning and we're consuming a lot of materials, 
it is definitely very viable. Now, do I like start a new company and, you know, co-founding incubate that as well? Maybe. Do I just, you know, expand the product lines that Varda focuses on and, you know, start to do that as well? Maybe that as well. I get what you're saying. So it makes sense as, you know, sort of a bridge to those like super, super sci-fi, like totally non-venture backable things right now, like sort of as a base layer of infrastructure for that. Does that have any other implications for things that relate to humans, right? Because, you know, obviously you're not going to have guys with, you know, next to the 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 assembly line, like making shit in space, like that's not going to happen. Does this play into, you know, actual human space exploration more directly in the sense of like space tourism or anything like that? For sure. Once you have a robotic company that's like the size of the ISS or two times or three times the size of the ISS, creating a human rated component to it or creating a human rated reentry vehicle, like starts to actually sort of make marginal cost sense. Cause like there are things that like humans are good at in terms of like dexterity and repairs and things like that. But so yes, you know, part of why I get excited is it also provides more, you know, human incentive for having people up there. That's like commercial incentive, not just like a government run research station, right. That is extremely risk averse. And for sure, I am sure that, you know, there, there's almost certainly I can guarantee that somebody will die on a Varda space station at some point, right? Like that is, you know, in some ways a given, but I think that's sort of part of, you know, progress is being willing to like, you know, push the fold on these things. And so, yes, you know, at some point it starts to make sense to, you know, have humans up there that comes with some risk, but that also, you know, comes with uh, a decent amount of upside as well. And, you know, it, it, the marginal engineering that needs to be built to that needs to be done to to create a human rated component to it is worth the upsides you get from having a human up there that can go and repair things when they break. Got it. And I guess taking a step back, just like in terms of operationally, like engineering, you know, team, all of this stuff, you're not the CEO, but you had a pretty big say in like putting the team together and like picking a CEO and all that stuff. How do you go about building a team for an operation like this? Like what are some key sort of components that you need for looking for guys like that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the CEO is the most critical thing, right? Like, you know, this is a, an extremely difficult, ambitious, like, you know, capital-intensive project. And, like, you can't do it without the right CEO. And I'm not the right CEO. You know, I'm a good storyteller. I'm a good financier. I'm not somebody who can, like, you know, build these spacecraft, recruit these engineers, you know, convince them to join. And so the key thing was, one, finding a chief scientist that had done microgravity manufacturing before. So that was, like, the initial co-founder that we sort of pulled together. And the second was find somebody that can build this deep tech, this ambitious idea and recruit the quality of engineers that we need. And so, you know, I helped put together the sort of, you know, founding team, I, the two co-founders, but then, you know, Will Brewery, our CEO has basically recruited everybody since then. And then I was, the skill set that I was looking for in him was, can he recruit? He's an absolute, you know, uh, monster of a recruiter, just, you know, pulls people in basically, you know, left and right. And he's just, uh, He's a, he's a very good storyteller and he's kind of sometimes joke is a spirit animal is a golden retriever. Um, <laughs> it's kind of hard to say no to a golden retriever when they want to play fetch. <laughs> I like that way of putting it. So what about you? Do you, I'm assuming you have ambitions to go to space at some point, space, orbit, moon, Mars, like what's the dream here? Yeah. I mean, I told uh, my girlfriend on our first date that, you know, she would have to be comfortable with the idea of us moving to space uh, permanently as a part of my work. And I think when I said that, you know, back in whatever it was, 2019, you know, I think she saw it as like sort of more of a joke. She's like, aha, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of crazy people, you know, especially in Silicon Valley, like to, you know, talk about space, but, you know, that's kind of a joke and, you know, nothing's ever going to happen. And then I think sort of as Vardas come along, she's starting to realize that it's sort of, you know, more and more serious. And so, yeah, no, very excited to, you know, be one of the very early people, you know, operating one of those Vardas space stations. Hopefully we don't die, but, you know, that's definitely, you know, part of the risk that you take on with ambitious endeavors like this. Jeez, man. Cool, dude. Well, cool. listen, I appreciate the time. It was great, great chatting with you. 
Sweet. Yeah. Very nice to meet you, Alex. Have a great rest of your day. You too, man. See ya. Cheers. Bye.